dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technologies with me, Tiasha Zait. December is a positive month of the year with Christmas spirit everywhere and exciting plans for the next years. That's why episodes of Faces of Digital Health in December are all about inspiring stories of people in digital health and healthcare. And today you're going to hear an update about VR. You're going to hear from three speakers, Jennifer Esposito, the current vice president and general manager of the health business unit at Magic Leap, which is pioneering an augmented reality platform to amplify enterprise productivity, Aaron Gani, CEO of Behavior, which cultivates community with the country's leading researchers, advocates and clinical domain experts to co-develop solutions for mental health, and Rafael Grossman, surgeon, educator, speaker and one of the leading voices in medical extended reality space. We talked about the current state of VR, AR and XR, what problems have been resolved, what's the status of availability of VR for medical purposes, what are the current challenges and more. Enjoy the show and do check out the website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com to browse through other episodes as well. Last year, I did an interview with another authority in the field of VR, Brennan Spiegel, after his published book VRX. Find the link to that episode and the summary of that episode in the show notes. Now let's go to today's discussion. Hello everyone, Rafael Grossman, Aaron Gani and Jennifer Esposito. It's an absolute pleasure to have three super esteemed speakers to talk about VR, AR and medical extended reality uh, on faces of digital health. And I'm very happy that for this topic, we actually have three of you who cover three different areas. So Jennifer Esposito coming from Magic Leap, uh, Rafael Grossman, a known expert and opinion leader in the VR space, working in the clinical practice, and Aaron Ghani, the CEO of Behavior, uh, that uh, is addressing mental health challenges with VR. So maybe just as a quick warm-up uh, question, Rafael, I think that the distinction between VR and AR is pretty clear today. So in one hand, you're in a completely virtual environment with the VR headset and with augmented reality, you're in the space uh, that you're in, but something appears uh, also around you virtually because of the, the headsets that you're wearing. So where does medical extended reality stand in this? What's the distinction? There's a lot happening in the space. Uh, progress is happening fast. Last year, when I interviewed Brennan Spiegel after the publishing of his book, there were 5,000 studies already out there for the therapeutic uh, impacts of VR. So clearly, the the potential and the impact is studied. And also, the FDA is getting on board already. Last year, the FDA gave VR a special designation as a breakthrough device for managing pain. And this this year in November 
2021, the FDA gave a prescription use immersive virtual reality system that uses cognitive behavioral therapy. It was approved for pain reduction in patients 18 years old. So maybe from all three perspectives, how do you see the changes uh, that are happening in the VR space if we try to limit ourselves to the last two years when the progress has really accelerated? Thank you uh, again, Tasha, for the invitation. It's really great to be here. So it, it's basically the, the way I see it, right? MXR, right? Or, or medical extended reality is relatively a new term. I, I never heard it before, uh, to tell you the truth, in March, I think, or, or February of 2020. Um, I was at the FDA giving a talk. Uh, it was on, on VR in healthcare. And, and sort of soon after that conference, I started seeing that term more and more. The way I see it is a, a, a augmented reality where you have a, a, an interactive connection with the digital content over the real world for a, a medical application of some type. Uh, uh, that's uh, is the easiest way to to understand that I think. Anyway, uh, any time we use a augmented reality that is interactive and that it's more than like a Google Glass type picture or a, a Pokemon Go type picture, then it, it becomes a, a, a extended or mixed reality. And when that is applied to surgery or to training, to simulation, to many other uh, uh, sub uh, systems in, in, in healthcare, uh, that is referred as a medical extended reality the way I see it. I, I think the last couple of years have been really uh, uh, exciting and incredible, mainly because of the, the, the what you already mentioned. I think that finally we're seeing a, a, in particular, virtual reality as a is um, another tool, uh, as another medical tool, another a, a not just a, a educational a, a tool where you can immerse yourself to learn techniques or whatnot, or look at the anatomy or else, a, not just diagnostics where you can see a a, a 3D in, in radiologic image like a, a, a computerized tomography in any axis that you want and immerse yourself in that image and then with that real a, a data from a patient, then go and do a surgery, for example. Now we're seeing more a therapeutic use of, of VR, where a, between VR and AR or, or mixed reality, we are now uh, able to change how we do surgery and enhance or augment the actual surgical procedure. And there are many examples of that. And in the VR end, uh, you already mentioned, there have been already an openness from the FDA and other bodies in the world uh, to what VR can do to help a, a, a mental well-being, some mental disorders, and not just a perioperative pain, but anxiety, PTSD, a depression, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, this has, I think that is a real breakthrough. And like I was telling you a few minutes ago before we started, I think that the next year or two, that uh, explosion of applications in the software side of things and an explosion of uh, improved devices in the hardware side of things is going to coalesce to, to make something real revolutionary uh, uh, happen in, uh, in medicine. 
I think that was a perfect cue for uh, Jennifer. So Jennifer, you're working on the hardware side. How are you at the Magic Leap looking at developments that are happening? There's uh, new headsets being developed. There's, uh, as always, going from big machines to small machines in headsets going from heavy machines to easygoing, lightweight headsets. So what are your observations and how is that driving the development on your end? Mm. No, that's a great question. And I think if going back to the conversation we had at the beginning about the terminology and the definitions, I think that a couple of years ago when I would talk to people, they would say VR, AR, and they wouldn't know the difference. It's all the same thing. And I think we're now at a place where people can see Number one, they understand the different definitions, but more importantly, they understand where the use cases are. Because I, I think one of the, the big gaps I saw over the last couple of years in particular was just this, because everything was lumped together, VR, AR, there really wasn't a distinction about which technology was the right technology, depending on the use case. And so I think that's a, a great move forward for the whole ecosystem, because that means that I think people are ready to understand and consider the points of adoption. And as Rampia was saying, there's a lot of really great use cases and indications right now, particularly in surgery, where people a few years ago might not have really believed it, even though it was actually technically possible. People are actually starting to see the results and the benefits. And so I do think it's interesting in my world to see that some of the more complex or maybe even more extreme use cases are actually the ones that are probably going to be the first ones that really gain more regular mass adoption. It is not going to be these outside cases that are more simple to understand, like training and education. I think those are no brainers, right? Those are, that's low hanging fruit. But the reality is that some of these other things that might sound more technically complex are actually possible today. And so that's where I think I'm focusing all of my efforts with my own team on, on those kinds of use cases on the front end so that we can continue to fine tune the technology as needed, but also to demonstrate the capabilities and working with the right partners so that they can also demonstrate the capabilities in their own applications of solutions. Um, Aaron, you are working on the software side and basically also with the end uh, users in the consumer space, so patients that have problems. As, as far as I know, you work with therapists, so they can then prescribe the solutions uh, and suggest patients what they should use. So what kind of changes are you seeing on that end in the last two years? So mental health, because of the pandemic, is a huge topic. How has that uh, changed your work, your competition, and also accessibility of your solutions for patients? Yeah, so it's it's perfect for me to follow uh, Raphael and Jennifer, right? So researcher and and someone involved in provisioning the capabilities that are needed to really scale this stuff up. I founded Behavior in 2016. Our focus and mission is liberating the world from fear and pain. Okay, so that's our goal. It's really about mental and behavioral health. I am a lifelong technologist and attracted to creating applications and making things real in a way that they can scale up in the market. And so when we think about VR as a medium, and we work today exclusively in VR, we certainly have thoughts and sort of pipeline views around AR. We'll get there. For now, we're in VR. It really starts with understanding what are the unique sort of attributes of the medium and how our brains process that. So you can think about the mechanisms of action, to use a pharma term, that are relevant. And right? And there, there are many, but in the mental and behavioral health space, we really focus on the demonstrated power of this immersive medium for exposure, right? Whether that's cue exposure, 
exposure and extinction and think like PTSD or traumatic or anxious situations. We think about movement because when you get it, and this is equally applicable to AR, but when we think about embodied, guided, measured movement, that has a lot of utility across many applications, including chronic pain, but then also for things that are comorbid with pain and in depression and so forth. And then slightly less profound, but really still very powerful is just the incredible focus and absence of distraction that, that we can take advantage of in view. So when we can create such an incredible mm -hmm. focus with absence of distraction, that has implications for other things that can be practiced outside of the medium, but can be more powerfully done, such as mindfulness practice, which is available across a whole range of analog and, and digital techniques. So for us, we think deeply about finding researchers and proven science and there's fortunately more research than ever. You mentioned like your discussion with Brennan and there's studies that show this incredible exponential curve of research in, in the medical field in, in, uh, in XR. We focus on translating proven science into these immersive, engaging XR experiences with a focus on mental and behavioral health on this platform. We think every day about let's align on the right MOAs and let's think about how we scale this up in a way that enables clinicians to have control and oversight and allows consumers to access these programs at, at their convenience, generally in homes, but also in clinics. So from a what's changed in the last two years, it's just really about the explosion in data that shows that this stuff really does work and the number of researchers who kind of care about this, who want to work with us. And then the technologies involved, the, the great work of Magic Leap, of, of Meta, of HTC and making these things cost-effective, consumer-grade, manageable and scalable really does matter if we're going to reach the number of people that need our help. We are mostly talking about the developments and major developments that are happening on the U.S. market. So speaking of accessibility, Aaron, how is reimbursability managed? So how can patients even get to these things? Because we see them on social media, we read about them uh, in the media, but it's not like you can go to Magic Leap, buy a headset, buy a subscription and treat yourself. Different companies certainly take different paths. We are one and we're not the only one that takes an approach of really digital programs of any sort better the sooner they get to real users, right? Real clinicians, real patients, iterate, learn, get data, make it better over time. So we started with wellness products advancing towards FDA clear prescription digital therapeutics. We have some amazing partners in a Japanese pharma company, Sumitomo Dynapon Pharma, who's collaborating with us to create these therapeutics. They're interested because there is a global market for non-pharma therapies. There is increasing alignment across different markets in terms of regulatory regimes that we don't have to go deeply into. But we look at like FDA, software's medical device guidelines and uh, the European uh, medical device regulations, and there's harmonization across regulatory regimes for quality, safety, efficacy, less harmonization around reimbursement. The good thing is we are seeing progress in big developed countries, including in the U.S., that indicate that within yeah, a year or two, in most cases, there will be established pathways for reimbursement for manufacturers of these therapeutics with mechanisms to make sure that clinicians also get their compensated for their involvement in these things, because they really are clinician meets patient in these virtual environments.
I mentioned before how many uh, research papers have been published so far and how uh, research is advanced a lot. So maybe Raphael and Jennifer, can you talk a little bit about the whole co-creation process when it comes to solution? How do you start collaborating? What's the state of the collaboration right now? So between clinicians that should use these solutions in clinical practice, not just research, and developers on the second hand. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great question. What we're seeing with our partner ecosystem is that they're doing multiple different things, right? Early phase, they do a lot of usability studies and they leverage academic resources to do some of that at the front end. And then they're also jumping into the traditional mechanisms of setting up clinical trials and trying to really prove out the effectiveness and the usability and the even the equivalence, or maybe in some cases, the improvement that the application that they've developed that leverages our technology runs on. And I think that's the right thing to do, because I, I don't think what any of us want to see here is that we take a, a an approach where we take a consumer device and we're just trying to, you know, retrofit it into a more clinical setting. I think what we all want to be able to to prove is that the platforms that we are all building and exposing the industry to, whether it's a hardware platform or hardware and software or a standalone uh, piece of software or solution, I think everyone here wants to to go through the rigor and the necessary steps to prove both clinically and analytically that that what you're getting is valid. And therefore, that leads to a much easier uh, path, both, I think, from the regulatory perspective, but certainly when you start to talk about reimbursement. Um, as well, because in some cases you can actually leverage existing reimbursement schemes and codes. It doesn't necessarily have to be net new. It doesn't have to be this, you know, huge uphill battle of creating new CPT codes or whatever. There's definitely a path depending on the use case, depending on the task or the, to take advantage of what's already there by proving out the similarity or the equivalence to the existing gold standard um, that people are using. Yeah. And. Yeah, and to add to that, and, and that's great, Jennifer. I, th- I think we are in the in the in the phase now where this must happen. This needs to to be accelerated. You mentioned five thousand papers, but if you go deeply into the five thousand papers, it's really somewhat exciting, but it's not you know radically a a, 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 a surprise that it's that is happening. I think that a, a, the use of a, let's call it XR right in, in general a, in medicine needs to needs to be um, accelerated and and the only way to do that the only way to get to something that is a uh, real that is valid that is reimbursable that is uh, something that is reproducible is uh, by by validating the, the data and doing research studies and so the the importance of the industry is obviously vital that in there's no way that that someone who thinks about doing a study and you would want to do a double blind randomized control the trial a, a see if a particular VR therapy or a particular AI solution would work for this or that problem. I think that unless we produce much more diverse and validated trials. We are not going to go too much further, but that is happening. And I think industry companies like Magic Leap, for example, are, are really being open to doing things like that. And that is that is exciting. I, I recently became a, an advisor to be you know honest about my relationship with XR Health. Which is a, I think, a, a, a probably the first company that has a, a VR solution 
that it's not just effective, but it uses telehealth and is reimbursed. And I think the business plan, and I'm just a sort of a clinical advisor or a voice for that. I really don't have a great, so I'm not part of the company or anything like that. So I'm just talking about the company because, and that's the reason I, I, I agreed to, to be part of that team is because I think they're doing something exciting. And a year ago, even before a year ago, before the pandemic, they were already using a VR headset with a great VR solution to treat basically and to do rehabilitation, physical therapy, occupational therapy, using a remote connection with an expert. This is before the pandemic. And then suddenly the pandemic hits and now their solution now is a real needed solution. And then they started to get reimbursed for that where they can send with a prescription. You can get actually without a prescription, you can get a headset to someone. You can connect with a physical therapist. So to me, that is really how this needs to happen. You need to get to a point where where a certain a, a, a treatments a, are going to be directed not by a physician prescription a, all, all the way all the way to a, a physician prescribing you a VR treatment for a depression or any other a disorder. So I think that that is a, a, the way that things you know, need to move, but we need to do it fast. And the only way to do it fast is to creating data and validation so that the FDA, for example, in the U.S., that is now very upgraded, I call it, and very open to all these digital health technologies to accelerate medicine, uh, then can look at the solutions and then bring them on. And people can start benefiting from the type of, uh, of, uh, of uh, technologies out there. A few years ago, one of the challenges in using these, these technologies for medical education was the creation of educational libraries with content. You need to have the internal organs, the everything in the body if you want to offer those kinds of solutions. And that means that you need experts in medicine, in anatomy, in, in drawings, in design, and developers that can then put all this together. So to which extent is this still a problem today in accelerating the amount of knowledge that can be obtained through VR or XR? I, I, well, if, if I may, so I don't think that's really a problem anymore. There are many solutions out there that are anatomically and physiologically correct that are amazing tools for a, a really almost any stage of the, of the educational journey in medicine from patients and relatives to medical students, all the way to nurses, technicians, doctors, specialists, subspecialists, in many specialists, not just surgery, which is the more sort of natural specialty that has been tackling VR and AR for a while. I think that there are great solutions out there. And the, the interesting thing is that more and more schools and very renowned schools have incorporated in their curricula the use of VR for learning anatomy or for doing things in general in medicine. I recently was a part of a team that created a curriculum for a Northeast University on the use of VR in healthcare. And it's fascinating because when you start researching and you think that not too many people is doing this, yeah, not too many people is doing this or using this, but there are more and more schools every day using these technologies as part of their initial curriculum, not just a little group, a proof of concept that, no, they are giving devices or they have in their curriculum, certain uh, 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 classes, uh, uh, studies like, like anatomy, for example, or physiology that are using this 
technologies. You have more and more examples of colleges, for example, a Morehouse College, for example, that has digitized their campus and you can put a headset on and basically do anything that you do in the real campus. You can do it in virtual reality. It's really pretty fascinating how fast this happened. Jennifer, can you offer a comment here, given that Magic Leap is doing 3D reconstructions of MRI and CT scans? How are you researching what else can be used in order to make as most uh, useful content as possible, as fast as possible? Most, For the most part, just to be clear, the work is really being done by our, our partner ecosystem. We're here to build the platform both on the hardware and the software side and even potentially a layer in between that would facilitate some, some of the common needs that we're seeing in either the med device industry or even in the, the digital health space. From my perspective, it's really important that those partners are the ones driving that because they already have existing solutions in the 2D world and they're expert in that space. And so I think we have to rely on um, that existing ecosystem of people that are really finding the right use cases to go from a 2D solution into 3D and then in a, in a similar fashion, finding the best path forward to make sure that there's the accuracy that is required. The, and it's not just accuracy because we've been having these conversations in a couple of different working groups that I've been involved in. It's not just to say that you apply a 2D test to 3D and you can measure it, image quality or display quality or color fidelity or whatever. We, we do probably need new methodologies. And that's something that I know that the FDA, MDIC, right? There's, there's lots of organizations that are working on this right now so that we have the right tools in place, the right standards in place um, to really tackle this question and that we're not struggling with trying to force fit analog or 2D methodologies as a way to evaluate something that's probably entirely different, both from an execution perspective and also in some ways an interpretation perspective. Aaron, how are you developing content on your end and to which extent is your content dependent on the hardware that's used? Yeah. So on the headsets. So very dependent in the sense that <clears throat> because our goal is not to primarily, you know, conduct research, but rather to scale up and be in clinical and in home settings and reach as many patients as possible, we must adapt to whatever the scalable affordable, manageable devices that are available today are. And so that certainly restricts what you're able to do from a, from a convenience factor and a cost perspective. It's all in one headsets that we need to use today, right? Like a Quest or a Pico G2 or Bifocus, et cetera. And so that puts constraints on you in terms of environment creation, sort of levels of fidelity, graphical resolution, et cetera. And that's okay. We expect that. It's part of the process. We are far advanced today from where we were as an industry two or three years ago, and that curve will continue and hopefully be very exponential. And, and Jennifer would know far more about this than me, but we're betting on 5G and edge computing and moving a lot of the workload to the edge of the cloud is going to help tremendously as well. So we think that's coming. So hardware definitely matters. You have to just deal with it. That's part of the, that's part of the game. In terms of how to create content, um, that is more complex, more fun, more exciting in the sense that I mentioned we focus on proven science, but that may be a proven outside of XR experiences. So there's a translational step, which is a little bit of like where the magic happens of thinking through how do we take things that are well understood and demonstrated to be effective in, let's say, a live analog setting between therapist and patient, or maybe have been digitized, but in a 2D manner 
And how do we translate to something where we're working in an immersive medium where we can get all the digital benefits of standardization, repeatability, personalization, lots of data collection, closed loop of your reaction drives the experience itself. And we're doing an immersive medium where movement is involved and the brain literally is engaged differently. And I'm not uh, going to go deep into it, but there are fMRI studies and other things that show literally it is a very different experience for your brain dealing with a 2D simulation versus a 3D immersive simulation. So that step of translating what we do know into a new medium necessarily introduces aspects of what we don't yet know. And then we have to go do the hard work to demonstrate, it's again, feasibility, safety, efficacy, and engagement, right? So that's the final step. It doesn't matter how effective your therapy is if nobody wants to use it. And so we approach this as part therapeutic development and part really almost like game development and game thinking and building mechanisms of engagement from what we know about why people get very attracted to and stay engaged with various experiences, mastery path and, and so on. So it's fascinating work. It's complex work and there's no short, but when you have the kind of uh, goal and sort of the, such a motivating objective in mind, it's, it's worth doing. Since you mentioned gaming and engagement, uh, I do want to maybe clarify a little bit how are therapies structured and at the moment and how does the approach differ based on the indication? So is it, it's because it's not that you would use VR therapies as a daily dose of medicine for the rest of your life. It's uh, structured therapies. So what kind of uh, changes are happening there? Is it two weeks for that, four weeks for that? I think the, the only good answer is it depends. So there's going to be a broad, a broad <laughs> of things that will be useful and hopefully therapeutically effective. Our programs, and, and maybe Raphael is an advisor to XR Health can talk about theirs. We have progressive multi-session programs with a variety of content. Some is psychoeducation. There's a lot of mindfulness practice and with some personalization therein. And then there are things like exposure therapy, guided movement. So it's not one thing. It's a variety of things. And the progression and the dosing, if you will, depends on the program itself, the indication you're going after. There are some aspects of our programs I think people would benefit from, let's say, lifelong practice. We don't design the programs that way because it's mm. just not really how the, let's say, the clinical system is optimized. But that doesn't mean that some aspects of it wouldn't be useful. Something like exposure therapy to overcome, like in our social anxiety product, to overcome that fear of social challenges. We don't want you to have to do that forever. We want to put you through something where your physiological and emotional reaction is reduced through that exposure and, and extinction process. And within six to eight weeks, you're better than if you have relapses, you can come back and get another set of, of dosing if needed. So. Ends a little bit on the program. Raphael, do you have any comments here? No, I, I think that Aaron is completely right. I, I couldn't really have said it any, any better. Uh, I think that it, it's just like any medicine, like any treatment. It depends. It depends on what you're trying to do. There is not a magic bullet to anything. And, and when you hear that, then, oh, okay, you got to be suspicious that it's really not real. But I, I think that we're barely touching the surface with any of these therapies. Okay. It, it, 
paid for education, for diagnostics, for therapeutics, for rehabilitation. We're barely seeing light at the end of this tunnel. And when we get there, it's just going to be like the sun. It's going to be so many things that, you know, in regards to the hardware, in regards to the software, you know, integration and the creativity of all these partners, companies that, that are, are, are doing amazing stuff and more and more things. And if you start thinking of how how integrating wearables to, to, to devices and monitoring and physiologic monitoring of different variables, that heart rate variability, GSR, pulse oximetry temperature, and that can be integrated into a device that maybe is even checking your electrical brain activity. And if you put all that together, you're going to have a device that, that is going to be like amazing possibilities for this combination of things in medical XR slash digital health. I think it's going to be really exciting. Aaron, did you want to say something? I, I was just uh, getting excited about Raphael's answer there. If he didn't mention eye tracking, I would add that, he, although he might have, because he went through a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, and I, there's so many things that, that I probably forgot. Yeah, definitely eye tracking, but it's just stuff in there that it's even not out yet uh, that people is doing or thinking to do, and it's just unbelievable. And if you add like an artificially intelligent algorithm to a lot of this stuff, and, and uh, you, you think about the cloud and how everything can be integrated and and, and that's just talking about, let's say, education, diagnostics, and and therapy, right? But one of the things, in, and maybe you'll have that question for later, but what, what is the future? What is needed out there in real clinical day-to-day -day medicine, especially in an era like this? And I call it an era because with the pandemic, we, we I think we're barely starting, you know, to see the repercussions and the effect that that's going to have. They have it in, in, in healthcare systems all over the world, but especially here in the U.S., we haven't even touched using any of these devices to mitigate uh, uh, how we deal with patients in the hospital, how we triage patients, how we interact with the patient on the medical record, all of that stuff. And I think that's for me, that's the holy grail of, of using the hardware and software in, in XR, MR, right? The MXR. I think that, I think that's where we need to go. And, and I'm, I'm working in a couple of projects that are super exciting, but uh, yeah, it's, it's coming. As we mentioned, a lot of positive progress has happened on the regulation side. So regulators are getting on board with these technologies. Uh, reimbursement doesn't necessarily have to be a problem. So what are challenges that you currently see in the space? Maybe Jennifer, if we start with you. So what are the biggest challenges that are currently? I think it goes back to a little bit of what we were saying, right? These kinds of clinical studies and research, they take time. You need critical mass in terms of the number of studies that you do. And I think that's one thing that we have to be mindful of, making sure we take that and run it run it through its necessary and important course, obviously. I do think that, like I mentioned earlier, there, there are going to be places where we need new standards or test methods or comparative assessment capabilities. And I think we need to figure out what those are, depending on the use case, depending on the area of application, so that we can work together as an industry to to pull those together. And I think we, we really do need to be proactive about that, um, because I do think otherwise, in the interest of, of moving things along and accelerating, sometimes you end up using, I think, perhaps maybe not quite the right comparative tool, just relying on the old mechanisms that really don't necessarily apply. And then I do think that there there is still a lot of room for additional education and talent to come into this space in terms of developing on these hardware and software platforms. Even things like thinking about how you would maximize 
the use of 3D. Sometimes we've done different demos and prototypes and we've worked with all sorts of different people. And I think one thing that I see happening over and over again is that we take this easy route of slapping a 2D image on a wall and calling it 3D because you can see it in 3D, but you haven't fully taken advantage of what 3D brings to the table. And so I think that's something that it's just, it's, I think it's a skill set that just isn't there yet. And it, it's just going to take more people, more time to think about it and to try things and to put it into practice and, and get that, that closed loop feedback from the end users. Um, because I think that's going to really change the game too. I think there's a lot of new paradigms that have to come and it's just a question of time and, and really building up the right slate of people to really help deliver that. Aaron, do you want to go next? Yeah, I think that was well said. I, I, I think there is a challenge that, so this will paraphrase Walter Greenleaf. Anybody working in this space knows Walter. He, he talks about how VR is not viral outside of putting a headset on or something close to that. It's very hard <laughs> to communicate to people why this matters until they experience it. And even then, it's not always, it might, wow, that was really cool, but it, they may not really get the many layers that, that are involved here. I think Jennifer said earlier, like there's some low hanging fruit stuff that it's easy to go. Oh, yeah, we should training in VR makes sense. Like we train pilots in flight simulators. Like that's easy to get your head around. And then there are things that are a lot less obvious that we are still learning the big we, right? Are, are still learning about the medium. Why is time to exhaustion longer in a fitness application? And, and why is negative sensation of pain like re reduced in VR? And I won't disclose the number. I don't know that it's public, but Meta, Facebook have talked about they were blown away by the adoption of fitness and the percentage of apps for sales and Quest mm -hmm. that are fitness related. That it's the most retentive category quest. I don't think anybody saw that coming. Maybe somebody did. Like, why? What's going on there? No. And so there's all sorts of things we're going to learn about VR, AR over time. I'm sure when we all got our first personal computers or pre-iPhone, we didn't see all the ways that it would profoundly change our, our daily lives. And that's going to be true again. But it, it, dialing all the way back to where I started, and this happens you know, with fundraising, for example, there are a lot of very smart people who just don't have a deep appreciation understanding yet of why this stuff really is transformative. And they think, I don't know, it's games and headsets and it doesn't really seem like it's taken off yet. So it must not be that big of a deal. And I think they're going to be surprised. Mm. Okay. I think, go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I was just going to add that I think, Raphael, you already alluded to this. It's not just VR or AR. It's actually all of these other technologies as well like AI and edge compute, 5G, Aaron, you mentioned that too. Those, it's this, convert, I, I say it all the time, right? It's the convergence of these technologies, not just one of them in and of itself or by itself, that is really interesting too, because I think without some of those other elements, you don't necessarily fully take advantage of the potential of the technology. And I think that's why this is such an interesting time. That's why I think we're starting to see more and more traction because some of these other things are also coming along right in parallel. And I think people are also starting to understand that AR brings with it a lot of additional and new data that requires new new capabilities and tools. There's the, how do you integrate it with other data and what does that really mean? And so I think that's uh, the other thing that's, you know, it's not surprising, it's just super interesting right now to see all of that starting to come into play and people talking about it not in the vacuum of this nifty new technology, AR, VR, but this bigger picture of how do I take advantage of all of this stuff that's starting to really reach a maturity level. Rafael, the floor is yours. Where do you see the challenges? 
Yeah, I think Jennifer and Aaron have said it. Uh, I, I would think that there are many obvious challenges, right? I mean, how is this uh, not just for a few in the world? How do we massify the use of these devices? At some point, it will happen. It'll be like, remember those brick phones, Marty Cooper's uh, Motorola phone, and everyone thought, Jesus, who, who's going to want to have a phone in the pocket all day? And now look at us. we got two or three smartphones in our pockets. Uh, so we're barely seeing, again, uh, the power that we have in our hands with these devices. I just used to laugh two or three years, years ago when people was talking, oh, is it going to be VR or is it going to be AR? It's just going to be the same. It's just going to be one big sort of new way to uh, interact with the digital world. For years, Magic Leap had said it, right? The run is uh, was a magic verse. I really, now the, the metaverse, I think that it sounds like science fiction or the Matrix or something, but I... There's so much that we don't know. And uh, for example, when you look at a, a 3D image of a, of a computerized tomography, which by definition, you know, only has three axes, it's normal. And our brain, as any, anyone trained in medicine in the last 20 to 30 years, you interpret an image, a CAT scan in a 2D screen, even if it's a 3D image in a 2D screen, that's how you learn how to think and interpret that image. But when you put a headset you put, and you have a medieval application, for example, in there, and you have the same image that you have in your TD computer, but you have it floating in there. And I can go and go inside and look at angles that I've never, ever even dreamed of inside the body to look at someone who's after a trauma or after someone who has a tumor or something. We have to like retrain everything. We have to relearn when you look at what Brain Lab is doing, what their mixed reality viewer, right? And, and join it with Magic Leaf, and you see what Brain Lab is doing in real clinical practice in the operating room on how we used to localize certain images and guide surgery, right? A, a, a neurosurgical procedures, orthopedic procedures, a, with the help of a screen, and now it's you're out there. And it, it, it's just unbelievable. It's as difficult to describe to someone how to. How does VR feel? You have to feel it. You have to be there and you have to have the, in, the, in this case for medicine, you have to have the, the technical sort of knowledge of what are you looking for? And you see all these clues that you never thought it existed. They existed. So, it, but the challenge is obviously their risk. It, 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 when the more we get data from people, right? So the monetization of people, manipulation of people, right? All those things are risky. And the, the more you integrate this, this technologies into everything we do, and I do believe that this is going to be very soon a device that is going to basically displace it almost completely something like a smartphone. Because why would you want to be looking at something when you can, you know, maybe have some sort of device that is very minimalistic and with a user experience that is perfect? And why would you want to have something in your pocket that you turn on and you look at or something in your wrist? Or it, so I think that it's, it's it's just exciting, but we have to be careful with those things, how we monitor people, how we keep privacy, especially in the case of, of healthcare, how we don't, we are the product, right? The, the user is the product. So how do we prevent that from being, being more and more true? And uh, at some point, when this is, uh, is something that is more defined as a medium, I think that Obviously, um, think about the, the rest of the world, right? Just like healthcare is not available, but in a very small, good healthcare, safe and affordable healthcare is not affordable, but to a very few, how do we really make this something that is globally accessible to it, to, to most people on Earth and change their lives for the better? 
Maybe, Aaron, you can add something here. I think you are looking at the topic of how can VR address mental and, for example, prenatal health disparities in underserved communities. These technologies do cost, so it's not like everyone can afford to to buy them, use them. Yeah, I, I, there's a couple levels. So one is certainly digital interventions in general are maybe or maybe not expensive to create, but almost free to distribute into scale. If we're going to have any kind of shot at impacting the epidemic, pandemic of mental and behavioral healthcare challenges, we are going to have digital solutions to augment what human clinicians are doing. So that's true from smartphone-based solutions to XR. We believe part of our company's sort of 10-year mission is 10% give back intention, right? So that at least 10% of people accessing our applications, we want to be folks who otherwise may not have been able to, to afford them themselves. There is an extra challenge with VR today. Most people do not have headsets. That's just a reality that we have to deal with. And so we, we deal with that pricing and economic models with buyers, whether it's employers or, or providers, you know, clinicians and the like. I'm all in on the notion that digital interventions, digital therapeutics must be part of the solution to, to, to solve for the scale of the need. That's just, I think, irrefutable. Mm. And so what we are betting on collectively then is the increasing accessibility of these digital things. And in fact, you're seeing this not yet with XR, but across socioeconomic groups, you know, they may or may not have a lot of devices, but they probably do have a smartphone. So smartphones have that sort of ubiquity factor right. uh, going for them. And Raphael touched on this, and I'm sure Jennifer has insight we don't have. This, this, the 2D pane of glass is not the end of our evolution of our tech relationship. It feels like it today, but it's not. We will get beyond that. And when we are in this very different immersive medium and we see just how transformative that is, I expect that accessibility challenge will, again, those barriers will come down from a device accessibility perspective, not maybe for every single person, but for most of the people that we need to reach. So then it's back to the therapeutic content is digital. So if you have companies and stakeholders with the right intention, there's no reason that we can't make them affordable and accessible across all socioeconomic groups. There's plenty of value to be created by intervening with folks who are covered by payers and employers and out-of-pocket so on that we can reach hopefully everybody. So I'm really optimistic about digital playing a part in leveling those those barriers to care and getting... Is there anything anybody would like to ask on the optimistic side on what you guys are excited when it comes to the development um, of solutions in this space for healthcare? we've said it all (laughs) we've said it all nothing else for me (laughs) one thing that i'm frustrated about right is that for the last uh, many years now how many eight to ten years right we've had smart headsets or glasses or whatever you want to call them and uh, unfortunately a lot of the stuff we do in medicine today i'm I'm a full-time clinical person right i'm a transfer so I go and I'm either operating or we're on the trauma bay or I'm seeing patients on the floor, patients who are admitted or in the ICU. And the way we do that medicine, that, that act of medicine, that interaction between patients and providers and different providers is still the same as it was decades ago, right? We might have a smartphone, we might have a tablet, we might have computers on wheels, how we interact with the medical record, all of that 
has been this. And I am really uh, looking forward to when we have these technologies uh, help us interact with the digital data, the, the digital health that we've been doing for the last 20 years or so, uh, which has actually separated us from the patients in many ways. Uh, and it's been great for uh, for uh, for billing, reimbursement, uh, research, uh, but the data, all that is there and that's good, but we have separated ourselves uh, as humans, right, from the actual human patient and from the other human providers. And uh, yeah, I, I can't wait for the time when this technology is when I can have a magically floor in my head and I can basically, when I get to work, I put the magic leap on and uh, I am basically seeing my patient's data and I'm walking and I'm identifying the one patient in that one room and I get everything that I need to and I can have a, a cloud-based AI algorithm tell me the, the best way to do X or Y, and then I can just be with that patient and not spend hours in a computer writing stuff in a little piece of paper to go make decisions, but do it all on the go. When a trauma patient comes to the trauma bay, all when we resuscitate the patient and we bring him to CAT scan and I have to wait for the images on a computer sitting and log in and read the images and wait for a report, I can't wait when I have a magically five on my trauma bay and I can look at all the images as soon as the patient goes in and I have an AI algorithm helping me make a decision. That is the exciting part that I don't think is science fiction. I don't think it's going to be too many years before we are there. I, I would predict that within the next five years or so, we are going to be in some type of that interaction with the digital data in medicine in a very active way, not just for education, not just for diagnostics in a very calm situation, but for the day-to-day tasks that we do in medicine. We need to augment and enhance how we uh, treat patients uh, and even at home uh, with this type of technologies. And we haven't touched even, we're not even anything yet. You actually touched upon a really interesting topic, and that is, on the one hand, all these technologies can be used for medical education. So instead of practicing on a patient, you're practicing in a VR space. And at the same time, one thing that I didn't ask, but I can ask now, is to which extent is the availability of all these technologies changing medical practice? Because now you can explore in the VR space and change how things are done in the real world. Yeah, I think that's the key, right? It moves not just obviously into clinical practice, but into how you train people, but also just how you operationalize different use cases because all of these use cases that we're talking about have the potential, I think, to expand access to care in the sense that it bridges the the geographic boundaries that we all have. And that also goes hand in hand with the, the type of people that you're able to access depending on where you're physically at. And so being able to really kind of really not necessarily have that that boundary of a geography to pull in the right expert based on exactly who the patient is and exactly what their particular scenario is, or even in markets where maybe you have more of a generalist and you could benefit from having a specialist. I think the key here is that these technologies actually augment the workforce regardless of the location and enable you to have a new model or a new paradigm of the of profile of people that you're engaging with to deliver care. And that goes, the same thing goes for education as well, because you're basically able to deliver uh, a much more robust medical educational experience in the same way, regardless of where these, where people are at. It, the breadth of clinical practice, it's, it's so wide. It, imagine us being in a meeting saying, let's talk about mo- mobility or computers and their use in healthcare. It's too broad of a topic, right? So we're going to, 
with XR, these things are going to splinter into different groups. Just something we haven't talked much about. And this could be something Raphael does. I'm not sure. But Dr. Rob Lewis at Hogue, who's a neurosurgeon, uh, he's got a number of videos available online. You can Google it. And it does work with surgical theater. You know, nobody wants a brain tumor, but if you ever have one after seeing the work that surgical theater does and Dr. Lewis and how he plans these invasive, minimally invasive brain surgeries using XR, I would never go to a surgeon that doesn't use it. Like once you see it, you say that yeah. practice has changed. <laughs> so that's something like we didn't touch on that at all. It's very different from what we're doing in mental and behavioral health, completely different, but transformative. And so there's going to be many stories like this about the unique sort of attributes or characteristics of these media and how they will just fundamentally change what we're able to do, whether it's surgical planning to uh, digital therapies. Yeah, it, it, and that's absolutely a, a, a great comment, Aaron. And I remember a, a, when I first uh, interacted with a, a surgical theater years ago, and uh, we're still in that. I think the first Oculus headset was on, and they were, and they were telling me about this uh, over the phone, and it was just, so clear to me how we must do this. It's just like when I, when, when my father's a surgeon and, and when he trained his surgeries or when he studied anatomy, he didn't even think of even atlases or, or books with the, the definition of the, of the pictures that I learned with and then digital atlases and then atlases that are now digitized and, and now not even atlases where you actually have the actual real data of a patient in a headset. A, or it could be VR, it could be a, a mixed reality, like like Brain Lab, for example, is doing. So a, a, I think that there's really no limit. I remember when I talked to them and they were telling me about this, in my brain, I was thinking, not just to plan the surgeon, but imagine. And I told them this, and I, I'm not saying that I made them go this way in surgical theory, but, but I remember it was very early on, and I told them, but not only how to plan the surgery, imagine explaining the surgery to someone who had no clue about medicine, explaining them that you're going to go to the middle meningeal artery in your brain and there's a little thing that is an aneurysm and I'm going to clip it. Imagine instead of drawing that in a little piece of paper that you could bring them inside their own brain and they can walk around the little aneurysm and then see what the surgeon is going to do and really understanding what the implications of surgery is and what better informed consent that one obtained by having the patient live the problem that they had. To me, that way, another way of really utilizing this technology is to, to not just how we interact with digital data, but also how we understand you know, the information in a much different way that, that we never thought it possible before. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to browse through other episodes as well, see your podcast player or go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. Faces of Digital Health is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. So if you would like to explore healthcare further from various perspectives, go to healthpodcastnetwork.com. Stay tuned.